Good morning, everybody. If you're reading from the um, Church Bible, we're on page 36, and there's actually three small readings, but they're all on the one page, so you won't have to flick, flick pages. We're beginning Genesis 46, verses 1 to 7. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. They also took with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan, and Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. He took with them to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. Now we're moving to verse 28. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Now we're moving to chapter 47, verse 27. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years and the years of his life were 147 When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favour in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Well, good day, everyone. Scott's my name. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. If you want to follow along, there's an outline on the inside of the handouts that might be useful. And just recently, Pip and I, my wife Pip and I, have been watching a little bit of Suits. Ah, same problem with the clicker. I didn't turn it on. There we go, Suits. Uh, it's a show, I don't know if you know, it's a show about lawyers, basically these, these are high rolling lawyers, big shots. Uh, it's the show that is famous for Meghan Markle, who's now Princess Meghan. This is, what, this is what she's from. There's a lot of things that the show's about. It's about getting revenge, but not by using your fists. You, you use the law on your side. It's a show about the inner office politics, how rank matters. This guy here is one of the main characters, Mike. 
Mike is doing the dullest things all the time. He makes poor choices. I think the show is partly about the bad decisions that Mike makes. But really, I think in a lot of ways, one of the biggest things that the show about is that it's actually a show about trust. Mike has a big secret. He's not actually a lawyer. He shouldn't be able to work for the company, and yet he does. He knows this secret, and his direct boss, who's Harvey there beside him, Harvey knows the secret as well. But the question is, can they trust anyone else with this secret? If they let it known, will the whole thing just blow up in their face? There are other times when some lawyers within the firm need the help of other lawyers, but can they trust one another? Or will it be that the lawyer that they trust kind of double back crosses on them and makes them look bad so that the colleague, they get the promotion instead? There's, there's a lot, the, the whole theme of trust is running through the show, which I think makes it actually quite a human thing. Just think about it for a moment. You can't get through life without trusting people, can you? You need to trust people. And yet so often, we find that we can't trust people. I have a friend, and this friend says that she works on trust. Trust is her thing. For her, any kind of friendship must be full of trust. And when someone breaks her trust, well, she says, I find it hard to actually be a friend to that person anymore. I think most of us are like that. Trust plays a huge part in the way we do relationships with each other. But like I said, the problem is, we, always don't, we don't always come through for one another. You might trust me very well, but I can fail you. I can forget what I've said I'd do. Or, or I, I might not be able to do what I said I would do. Or I might just break my word to you. What about God? What if, what if God asked you to trust him? Should you do that? Could, could you trust God? That's where we're headed today. We're talking about trust, especially trusting God. We're asking, what does a life of faith look like? Faith is just another word for trust. What does a life of faith, a life of trust in God, what does that look like? Maybe you're here today and you know that you don't have faith in God. Today, I hope you get to see at least part of what it looks like to, to trust God, what that life looks like. And, and I hope you begin to see that, that God is actually trustworthy too. Maybe you're here today, though, and you are. You're trying to live out that life of trusting God. Today, I, I hope we get refocused on some of the key elements, that, those key parts of the life of faith. I hope today re-energizes you so that you keep trusting God constantly throughout your life. Why don't we pray then and ask that God would help us as we come to his word and think about this. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this word of yours, the life of Joseph and Jacob and the whole family. Father, as we turn now to think about 
whether we can trust you or not, as we look at these, the lives of these people, we pray that you would show us truly who you are so that we can know how best to live in your world. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're delving into the life of faith today. What does faith look like? What are some of the key parts of faith? And the first thing that we see is that faith, the life of faith relies on what God says. Faith relies on what God says. Let's just get our bearings a bit on what's going on in Genesis. We're in the last few chapters of Genesis. Jacob has just been told that his long-lost son, the one he hasn't seen for, for over 20 years, his long-lost son, Joseph, is still alive. In fact, he's not just alive, he's down in Egypt. And he's not just in Egypt, but he's, he's, he's Pharaoh's right-hand man in Egypt. This is wonderful news. And it's even better because there's this massive famine throughout the whole land, very severe, but there's food in Egypt. So what do you expect Joseph to do, Jacob to do at this point? You expect him to get off and get down to Egypt, don't you? But he kind of hesitates. Jacob, he, he gets his family together and all their stuff is there. And, and, and he sets out on his journey. He's been living in this land around about there, this land called Canaan. And he, and he goes to leave Egypt. And he gets to this town called Beersheba. I've just got the arrow pointing to it there. It's right near the border of Canaan. He's just about to leave the land of Canaan. And he stops and he starts offering sacrifices. We read about this just before. We're left thinking, why? Why the wait? Keep going. Come on, Jacob. But Jacob is cautious. He doesn't want to leave the land because this land is special. The land of Canaan is actually very important for Jacob's family. God has said to them, this will be your land. Your family will have this land. Jacob himself heard the voice of God. Jacob's father, Isaac, had been told that by God. Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, had been told that as well. This land is, is going to be theirs. So at that point, you can understand why, why Jacob is hesitant to leave. He doesn't want to just dismiss this promise of God. He wants to rely on what God has said. So he gets to the border. He sacrifices. He lingers. He's waiting. And then God speaks to him. Verse 2. God says, Jacob, Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I'll make you into a great nation there. I'll go down to Egypt with you, and I'll surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Jacob hears this and he, he doesn't linger anymore. No hesitation. Now Jacob knows that, that God wants him to go. And, and it's the word of God that is guiding Jacob in his life here. He relies on what God says. And that's a key to the life of faith. Faith relies on what God says. Now I don't think there's anything profound about that statement at all. But it is important that we get this right. Because when we miss this, well, it can actually be a faith killer. Let me show you a video, and I think the video illustrates my point. Here you go. Now, hopefully the sound is working. Let's have a look. Okay, then Lauren's going to catch you. 
Okay, it's called the trust fall. Okay, trust fall. Ready, set, go. <laughs> Who saw that coming? <laughs> that was a game of trust that went all wrong. The first problem was that sister number one and dad behind the camera, they didn't actually explain it properly. That's the first problem. And the second problem is that sister number two thinks that she knows what she's got to do. She thinks, I'll just fall forward. But she got it wrong. Those are two problems. And they both help illustrate what, what trusting God is like, what relying on God is like. The first problem was that sister one and dad didn't explain things properly. And I want to say, with God, that first problem never happens. God's word to us is entirely clear. What he wants, he clearly tells us. We might want him to tell us other things. We might want him to tell us, oh, which job should I take, God? Tell me. Who should I marry, God? Tell me. Where should I send my kids to school? Tell me, God. But God has told us what we need to know. God has told us what he wants us to know. And he tells us clearly. So that first problem, it's not actually a problem with God and us. However, that second problem still happens. See, sister too, she thought she knew what she had to do. But she got it all wrong. That kind of thing can happen with us as we live out the life of faith. We think we know what God wants. And so we trust him and we end up falling flat on our face. So if we're going to live the life of faith, we just need to be super clear about what God says, about what God promises us. We need to keep going back to the word of God, to keep listening to the Bible so we can know his promises, so we can rely on his promises. That is, are you finding it hard to trust God at the moment? Is that because you're not clear about what God has promised you? Do you need to go back and just immerse yourself again in the word of God? The life of faith is one that relies, that knows and relies on the word of God. Which leads us to our second point today. Once we know what the promises of God are, those things begin to shape our life entirely. Or to put it differently, the life of faith doesn't settle for the things of this world. That's point number two today. Again, we see this in Genesis. That Jacob and their family, they make it to Egypt. There's a big family reunion. There's tears and hugs, and it's, it's, it's fantastic. But then pretty quickly, Joseph kind of springs into action. Uh, last week, we saw his master tactician, and we see that on full display here. He says to his brothers, we're going to go see Pharaoh. You make sure you tell them that you're shepherds. And the brothers say, okay, okay, okay. And they get before Pharaoh, and they say, we're shepherds, Pharaoh. And, and, and look at what Pharaoh does then. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. So here we have it. 
the family. They're in, the, in a place that's going through the midst of severe famine. And what have they got? They've got the best part of the land in the best country that has the food. Their livestock can graze. They're looked after because they're caring for Pharaoh's livestock. And later on again, if we keep reading, we'll see that Joseph is able to provide his family with stacks and stacks of food. In the words of the Lego movie, everything is awesome. Life is good. These guys are set. And it would just be so attractive at this time to set up shop here. Settle down in Egypt. Let's establish our roots here. This, is, this, this could be our home. But that's not what the family does. In these last few chapters, time and time again, the family it, it keeps showing that Egypt is not home. The land that God promised them, that's where their home is. That's where their heart is. You see it time and again. I'm not going to put these up on the screen. You can look them up later if you want. In chapter 47, verse 30, Jacob asked Joseph to make sure that he gets buried back in the land of Canaan. In 48, verse 4, Jacob repeats the promise to Joseph that God had told him. Their family is going to be given the land in Canaan, not Egypt. 48, 22, Joseph gives that one bit of Canaanite land that he owns to, Jacob, to Joseph. So Joseph will now own it. When, Joseph, when Jacob blesses his sons, so many of the blessings are about the land. Zebulon is going to have a land near the sea. Ishika is going to have a pleasant land. And again in chapter 49, Jacob gives instructions that he's to be buried, not here in Egypt, but back in the land of Canaan. And all this leads to the point that they've been given this great land in Egypt. But they know that Egypt is not where they're going to stay. So they don't settle down there. Because faith doesn't settle for the riches of this world. It has something better. It has the promises of God. And that's exactly what the New Testament says about this family too. Later on in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, the writer is reflecting on on Joseph's family and Jacob's family. And look at what it says about them. It says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things so they're looking for a, a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God. For he's prepared a city for them. Now see what it's saying? Their faith doesn't settle for the riches of this world. Not only were these guys not setting their roots down in, in Egypt, but they're actually looking forward to something far better. A heavenly city. One that God has prepared for them. Because faith doesn't settle for the riches of this world. So let me pose you a question then. Uh, are you finding the life of faith to be dull or, or, or boring or um, unfulfilling? If that's the case, is that because you're actually just settling for the riches of this world here 
for the pleasures on offer here, for the comforts of a nice life. Is that what's going on? Far better, friends, to chase the riches that God offers, to long for, to to pursue the, the heavenly country, the one that's prepared by God for us. Faith doesn't settle for the riches of this world. Now, if you're going to take that up for your life, that's a very big call. Because it means you're, you're throwing away any opportunity to make it here. So maybe you're here today, you've come along, and, and you're not really sold on the whole God thing. And all that I'm saying is just reinforcing that. Because why would you give up this for something you can't even see? Or maybe you're here and you do call yourself a Christian and you're starting to wonder, what have I gotten into? What did I sign up for? Which is why this next part is just super important. How can you be ready to give up all that the world offers? How can you be ready to throw it away in the hope of something that you can't even see? What we see next is really important. That faith trusts in God's goodness. Faith trusts in God's goodness, even in suffering. We pick up the story again. Um, Joseph's about to die. He blesses his sons. A small bit of time passes, and then, Joseph, uh, then Jacob himself dies. There's lots of mourning. There's lots of grief. Uh, Jacob's taken back into the land of Canaan, where he's buried. And then, as, as it happens... Life kind of just keeps going on in some way. Except for Joseph's brothers, they're worried that life won't keep going on. Their father's dead, and now they're worried, maybe now our brother's going to take his vengeance on us. Maybe Joseph was just playing happy families so that dad could die in peace, and now he's going to come and knock us off. Look, look at the story. This is chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. It seems unlikely that Jacob actually did give these instructions. But it gives us a sense of how concerned the brothers are. They're petrified, aren't they? Just think of what they've done to Joseph, their younger brother. What they've put him through. It's because of them that that Joseph was ripped out of his family when he was just a teenager. Because of them, he was forced to become a slave for who knows who. Because of them, Joseph's whole life trajectory was thrown for a long time into utter chaos. Sure, they didn't put him in prison, but their actions put him in the place where he could be thrown in prison. So how does Joseph respond there? How does he exact his revenge? I keep soaring. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. 
But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph here is really saying two things. First, he says, I'm not God. God's the judge, not me. So Joseph doesn't seek to pay them back. Joseph is leaving room for God's justice. Then second, Joseph says, God had good intentions. I mean, yes, you guys did what was evil, absolutely. But God's intention was only ever good. See, it's not that God had this great plan to bring Joseph down to Egypt in like a first-class travel and all the trimmings, and then suddenly the brothers got in the way and, oh, just got got thrown out a little bit, but God got it back in the end. That's not what happened, because the brothers had evil intention from the beginning. It's also not that the brothers acted wickedly, and then God was like, well, how do I mop this mess up again? How do I get to the happy ending? I don't know. Oh, here, it worked out. Okay, good. No, 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 because God intended everything from the beginning for good. The good intentions of God and the evil intentions of the brothers are both at work. And for Joseph, that gives him peace about the situation. He won't try and take revenge now because he realizes God's good intent. Even in the midst of the evil that his brothers did. Faith trusts the goodness of God even in times of suffering. Now, you might be thinking, it's, it's kind of easy for Joseph to say that now, isn't it? I mean, he can see how things panned out. He's got his happy ending. He can see the good that God has, has done here. So it's easy for him to go, oh, yeah, God intended for good. In some ways, it, it is. It's, I don't know if it's easy, but at least it's easier for Joseph to say that. He can see the big picture. But what about when I can't see the big picture? What about those things in the past, all the things I'm going through now, and I've got no idea why God is doing this. I can't see the big plan. I've, I've got no, no, no idea about how God could bring good from this. Well, what do I do then? Let me ask a different question for a moment. What's the most evil act in human history. Just think about that. What's the most evil act in human history? There's a lot of things you could go for, right? There's the, the slave trade, which plundered Africa of many men and women and children. There's the Nazis and their attempt to completely wipe out the Jewish population. Horrible. Or uh, even within our own country, recently it's been uncovered the the horrible abuses done to children at the hands of the churches and others that should have looked after them. These things are, are horrible. They're wicked. And yet I want to say, there is something more evil than these. And that is the crucifixion of Jesus. For when Jesus hung on a cross, it was not 
It was not merely human-on-human violence. But this is, this is humanity against our God, against God the Son, the one who gave us life and everything. He comes down, and what do we do? We kill him. And yet have a look at how the Bible describes this. Talking about Jesus, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Right here at this very lowest ebb of human history, God is at work. Yes, there are people with evil intentions. Yes, and absolutely. But there is a God there with good intentions, with great intentions. For it is by the death of Jesus that many are saved, and not just saved from famine, but saved from hell. So what do you do when you're going through something and it's bad and you can't see what God is doing and you're questioning how God could have any good intentions in this whole thing? What do you do? We go to the cross, don't we? We go to the cross. There is humanity at its most evil point. And yet there at the same time we see God at his most good point. There is God bringing salvation, even in the midst of the horror of the cross. I'm not suggesting that suddenly we, 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 we put our eyes on the cross and everything just becomes easy and, oh, well, everything makes sense. No, no, not at all. But when we turn our eyes to the cross, we see the reality of how God can work good, even in the midst of evil. So when I'm going through that evil in my life and that suffering in my life, I know that even then, I don't know how God can do it, but I know that he can do it. Because at the worst point of human history, God did do it. Yes, absolutely. I need to wrestle with God in my prayers and ask him what's going on and cry out to him. Absolutely. But I also need to go back to the cross. I also need to see God's goodness there to me, even in the midst of suffering. That's what faith does. Faith trusts God's goodness even in the midst of of evil and suffering. So, we've come to the end of the book of Genesis. And what we see here is what we've seen throughout the whole book itself. Just the idea that faith waits on the promises of God. The ending in Genesis here, in some ways it's, it's kind of unsatisfying. Joseph gets his happy ending. He's, he's a great-great-grandfather by the time he dies, which is really quite a special thing. It's a good ending. And then it, the story kind of creeps on. It just keeps going. Joseph talks about God coming back to take the family out of Egypt, God taking them back to the Canaanite land. And, and Joseph says, you've got to take my bones back there too. And we're, we're, we're right here at the conclusion, and we're pushed forward. And we're left waiting to see what, what happens next. It's kind of like going to see one of the Marvel movies. You get to the end of the movie, and everything is wrapped up. The storylines have come together, and the credits roll through. You think, oh, that's nice. That's done. But then right at the end of the credits, there's like about a minute or so, and it starts a new story, just a flicker, a teaser, 
to hook you in so that you come back and see the next movie again next year. And that's kind of what's happening here too. Not that Joseph is trying to hook us into the next movie, but what we're seeing is that Joseph is looking forward to something, that he's waiting on the promises of God. He's waiting for God to act because that's what faith does. Faith trusts the promises of God and faith waits on God to enact those promises. That's the kind of faith we've seen again and again throughout the whole family. This family is not perfect, not by a long shot. Their faith wavers. It goes here, there and everywhere. And they have to learn to trust God. They have to learn to wait on his promises. Abraham learned this. He learned to trust God while he waited for a son. Jacob learned this. He learned to trust God while he waited for his inheritance that for a long time it looked like he would never get. Joseph had to learn to wait and trust on God even as he did this through the depths of horrible suffering. Now the whole family is in Egypt waiting on God to act, waiting and, waiting and learning to trust God that he'll bring them back to the land of Canaan. So we started with a the question then. Can God be trusted? What's the testimony? What, 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 are, what are Abraham, Isaac, and jo- Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph? They all say to us, yes, God can be trusted. So my question just for you to end today is, are you going to trust God then? Are you going to trust him and so rely on his word for your life? Are you going to trust him then? Even, even when you go through, through, through suffering, trust him that he's got good intentions. Are you going to trust him that he will bring about his promises? Or are you going to settle for the things of this world? Friends, if we're going to trust God, we can't do it by our own strength. We need to ask God for help. Just like just like with these men in their lives, he moved and changed and shaped them so that they would trust him. We need to pray that God will be doing that in our own lives too. So I'm going to pray for us. Join me in prayer as we ask God to help us in this. Our good Father, we say thank you. Thank you that in a world where we can't always keep our promises and when others don't keep their promises to us, thank you that we can trust you. Thank you, God, that your word is something we can rely upon. Thank you that your goodness is something that never dulls. Thank you, God, that you give us promises of something better than this world. Please, God, then, our Father, help us live lives of trust in you, lives of faith before you. Strengthen us where we are weak, Father. Help us hold one another up when we can't stand. Please keep us being people who trust and have faith in you. Please keep us to the end. Please let us see your promises come to full fruition, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.